Welcome to the like, Destiny Podcast. We're going to start back up in Romans 5. So we, we, walk, we walked through a bit of Romans. We, we've kind of talked. We glossed through. We, we, we glided through Romans 1 through 3. And we talked about how Romans is um, it's written to the Jews. It's really important we understand that. So it's a Jewish collection of believers in Rome. So Paul is a master Jewish theologian, and he's writing to people with a Jewish background. And so he's really starting to tackle some of these Jewish principles, some of the core elements of their faith, because he wants to um, help them understand that Christianity is not um, like an upgraded Judaism. You know, and a lot of people think that. They, they want like Judaism 2.0 almost, you know. Um, Christianity is Judaism with Jesus kind of duct taped on the side. Um, and, and the truth is that's probably what most... Um, initial believers in uh, in Jesus uh, in the early first century probably kind of saw it a bit like that. They were like, oh, this is just uh, like a, a fresh revelation. It's a new rabbi's teaching on our old teachings. And so we're just having a new revelation on something you know, we've already got. And actually this is a, no, this turns everything on its head. It completely unravels everything like we're talking about. Jesus shows up and we have to rethink everything um, because all of a sudden we have a, a, the image of the invisible God and it's like, whoa, this is different. And so Paul's kind of trying to unravel some of this stuff. So he starts and he's starting to, the, the first kind of few chapters are, are devolving um, this concept that the Jews had that we are God's favorites and we're better than everyone because we are Abraham's kids. And so he's starting to kind of mess with that, um, that theory a little bit and just be like, you know, um, you might think you're God's favorites, but God has other favorites. <laughs> In fact, everyone's his favorites. It's basically one of the core messages of Romans. And so he's, he's trying to break that down. And, you know, it's easy for us to think, well, we're not Jews, so that's not relevant to us. But we still do it in the church. Because everyone that comes to church on a Sunday, we're his favorites, right? And all the folks you work with that don't come along to church and don't say, oh, I love Jesus, they're not his favorites, right? Because that's how it works, right? In and out. And, and Paul, really, one of the big messages to Romans is like, you need to lose your in and out. Like, that's not an option anymore. And, and actually, what's interesting is Romans 9 is one of the main passages we use to teach in and out, right? We've got those that uh, God creates to, for glory and those that God creates for... It's actually teaching the exact opposite. But um, anyway, um, so Paul's starting to play with that at the beginning of Romans and just um, uh, just kind of tweaking some of their thoughts. And, and, and basically, what he does at the beginning is he just paints this horribly depressing, awful message of... We're all lost. We're all sinful. We're all kind of screwed, even us Jews. And that wasn't, they would have agreed with all of those statements. Yeah, everyone's lost. Everyone's screwed. It's, it's all, all a mess. Wait, even us Jews? That bit would have got them because they were like, yeah, oh, we were talking about everyone else, not us. And he, and he ends it with even us Jews. We're completely lost too. And so he puts them all in this, this place. And, and they've got to be thinking, well, it's about the law. The law keeps me safe and the law is good. So it's okay at least. And he goes, yeah, the law makes us lost. The law doesn't fix us. So the law reveals that you're sinful, but it actually doesn't clean you up. And that's a problem because for the Jews, the law, yeah, it reveals your mistakes, but it actually really revealed as well a way to get out of it. And it made, you, uh, it made a way for you to clean up your act and fix yourself. But it's very clear. The law reveals sin, but cannot fix it. That's Romans uh, 3.20, isn't it? Um, and so... Um, Paul's starting to kind of unravel the very safety net that Jews have. I am safe because I have the law. And Paul goes, nope, because the law has nothing to do with it at all. It's about faith. Um, and then we talked about Romans 4, and we kind of dove into that, and we, we just kind of recapped on a little bit of that, but um, that Abraham wasn't saved by the law or by doing anything. He was saved because he believed. 
And then we kind of um, opened it up a little bit and we looked at what does it look like to believe? Is it something you try hard to do? Like I just try hard to believe. And we looked at actually belief and faith is actually something that God gives us. He, he gives us faith. He's, he speaks to us. When he speaks and we hear his voice, we're like, wow, I've got faith. I, I, I believe. And, and the only response really to have faith is to go, okay, when he speaks. Um, and actually, we then kind of um, played with that concept a little bit and thought, well, actually, if God's speaking to us is how we get faith, um, and us just saying okay to that as us having faith, then actually us placing our trust, our faith in anything else is actually unbelief, even if it's right. Because if it's different to what God is saying, God says to you, you could start a business and I believe in you. I'm going to provide for you and it's going to be great. And we go, okay, great. And we have this gift of faith. But then we go back and we look at our bank account and go, I've no money. And we go, actually, I'm not really trained in starting a business. And actually, I don't even have an idea right now. You know, all of a sudden, we're sowing faith into this unbelief. Unbelief is not a lack of faith. Unbelief is just putting faith in the wrong thing. And so it's not about having lots of faith or having little faith. It's about where do you put your faith? And so you can have belief and unbelief at the same time. You can faith in the right thing and faith in the wrong thing. And so he comes out of this um, kind of topic of faith, and he's going to now transition from this, this concept of faith. He's going to start really messing with their concept of sin and righteousness. And so this is what um, the, the passages of uh, 5 and 6 are all about, chapters 5 and 6. And so we're going we're gonna to do 5 and, and hopefully 6 together. We'll kind of hopefully cover all of that this morning. Um, and then we'll, we'll continue on in the afternoon um, with 7, and we'll, we'll, really, we'll really dive into the concepts of law um, because as Christians, we often think, yeah, I'm not under the law. I don't really, I'm not worried about the law, but we realize we really, really love the law. Like we really love it. And so that's going to be, um, quite interesting. But, uh, for now, I just want to, I want to read through Romans five. And again, I'm reading from the ESV. You don't have to follow along in your own Bible. If it's easier for you just to listen or whatever, I, I promise I am reading what it says. Um, read along just to check. Um, I change it every now and again. I'm joking. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'll create one in translation, like Brian Simmons or something, you know, the Phil translation. It'd be great. <laughs> um, that was what my April Fool's was about, actually. <laughs> right. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So this is kind of segueing. Um, he's been talking about faith, and now he's segueing into a kind of new topic. Um, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Remember, we talked about that as well. It's, it's great that grace, um, uh, it, it, it gives us this um, a whole new dimension and reality we step into by grace. But actually, it's through faith we get there. Um, and so, um, again, he's hitting that home. He's like, yeah, we, we, we rejoice um, that we have obtained access by faith into this grace. And so, yeah, we, it's we have this grace and this whole world we get to play with, this playground, but actually it's through faith that we, we engage with it, you know? And you think about it like, you know, um, imagine, this might not be too hard a, an imagination for some of you. Imagine you've got 20 quid in your bank, all right, okay? And you go to the ATM, how much are you going to withdraw when you want to come cash, right? 20 at most, right? Maybe you think better play safe and get a tenner, right? But you're not going to punch in 40 pounds, are you? Because that's a bad idea. It's how you get overdraft, right? But, if I had that day transferred a thousand pounds into your account and you hadn't looked at your balance, how much would you take out? 20 at most and 10 pounds, right? And so it doesn't really matter how much you've been given unless you believe. 
it has no real bearing on you how huge and how grand and how vast this gospel is until you access that grace by faith. And so until you believe how big God is, how great he is, how amazing you are, you're not actually going to walk in that until you have something to believe in. And so you can be, you can own the whole bank. And if you think you've got 20 pounds in your account, you're going in and going, I'd like to withdraw 1995, just leave 5p in there, <laughs> right? And so you can have the biggest lack mentality in the world and have the whole world in your hands. Um, and so it's really important that we understand that, yeah, grace is, is I mean, it's, it's the whole thing, isn't it? It's the whole thing that we've been given. But it's only as we hear his voice, we believe what he's saying, as, as we accept what he's saying, we say, okay, that's how we actually start stepping into it and walking in it. It's, it's by, by grace through uh, faith. Uh, so yeah, we, uh, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, a good person, one might dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, uh, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our uh, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. It's really interesting. Paul's kind of tearing apart the concepts of reconciliation and salvation and, and, and being saved. Um, and saved is quite a complex term. We talked about that yesterday. You know, I mean, like, is a really... Uh, murky area in the scriptures. It's not like a black and white, right? This is how someone gets saved. You do this, you do this, you do this. I know like, you know, your elders in the church might have a different opinion on that, but for the most part, there just isn't a black and white prescription to be saved, you know? And um, I know lots of people that have never set foot in the church that I would definitely call saved. Um, I know people that have spent their entire lives in church and I'm like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to do with you. Um, so, but Paul here, he just throws it out there. He's just like throwing this out. And he goes, yeah, well, everyone's reconciled to God. And hopefully much more people will get saved. And you're like, oh, I thought reconciliation to God and saved were the same thing. Right? So and that's quite an interesting concept anyway. So he's already just thrown that out there. And he's going he's gonna to pick up that train. But he's just giving you a little thread there to be like, wait, what? Because that's a bit different to how the Jews would have seen things. If anything, they're not going to see themselves as sinners anyway because... Yes, they're sinners, but they've got the sacrificial systems. They've got the, the processes for cleansing themselves and for walking right. And honestly, for the most part, because they are Jews, just in and off that fact, they are right with God. They're his people. They're his, his chosen people. And so they have a privilege of, yeah, we look out there and all those people are sinners, but we are God's people. We're his chosen people. We're righteous. Um, and so we never do that in the church either, though, do we? Um, so then, then he starts uh, opening up this whole new conversation because he's now starting to talk about what is righteousness and what is um, sinfulness and who is a sinner and who is righteous. Um, and this is a big deal because the, the Jews, again, they saw sinfulness as someone that didn't do the right thing. They broke the laws and then they didn't 
uh, obey the right laws to fix it. So they didn't do the right sacrifices or they weren't. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just let it pass. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so they, they have a concept of what well, a sinner is someone that, that breaks the rules and then doesn't clean up their mess, basically. They don't do the right thing to get right with God again. And a righteous person is, is, is the person that, that is born into the, the right heritage, is Jewish heritage, or they're grafted in, um, because you could be grafted into uh, um, to Judaism as like a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew or something like that. Um, but for the most part, it was part of his, the Jewish family, and they did the right thing. They, they obeyed the laws, right? Um, and of course, they were very picky and choosy, and Jesus loved to show that off, you know, when... when uh, Pharisees came with, you know, oh, this person's caught in adultery, right? That was a sin. Oh, gosh, they're really bad. And he'd be like, well, yeah, but how are you doing with the rest of the laws? Are you guys perfect in every way? And it's like, oh, crap, right? Because they, we love to pick and choose our laws. I mean, if, if anything uh, shows that, I mean, we, we look at Christianity. Um, you pick 10 different sins, and uh, I'll tell you, I can rank them in which ones will rile up Christians or not. You know, I could I could do a series, a sermon series of 10 weeks on different sins. And I could tell you which ones will piss off all the Christians and which ones won't. You know, oh, we don't really care about talking about lying because I'm not really convicted of that because it's just lying. I mean, we all do it every now and again. It's no big deal. Gluttony. Oh, well, you know, quite like a Big Mac every now and again. It's no big deal. Right. Homosexuality. Whoa, what, 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 which, which one? What? Right. I mean, whoa, whoa, don't touch that one. Right. Eating shrimp. Oh, yeah, no doesn't like calamari you know what i mean right and so we pick and choose our rules and our sins um and so um jesus constantly provoked that and, and poked the holes at that and and he would break the laws for fun which a lot of people don't know uh, or don't acknowledge again we gloss over things but he frequently broke the law um which is fascinating and yet he was sinless go figure that out um and yet, at other times he would poke uh, holes in other people's uh ways and go actually you're breaking the law and that's not okay. So he's messing with that. We'll talk about the law this afternoon, though. Um, but, but Paul here, he's starting to open up this concept of what is a sinner and what is a righteous person. Because this was something that the Jews already had. They, they, they understand. We know who a sinner is and we know who a righteous person is. That person over there is a sinner and I'm, a, and I'm righteous, right? It was a very it's a us and them situation, right? Um, and if you became a sinner, you quickly became a them. You were out. <laughs> they quickly launched you at the camp, right? And that, there's rules for that. If you look at the... Um, the rules in, a, in the Old Testament, very quickly, you break the rules, you do anything wrong, you're out. Heck, you have a period, you're out for a, a week or so. You know what I mean? Like for crying out loud, right? I mean, that's in the rules, Leviticus 18. Sorry, woman, like you're not allowed to come to church. You're not allowed to hang out with all your friends. Right? I mean, for crying out loud, right? I mean, so they had a very us-them mentality. Um, so he starts this whole conversation, and, and it's really interesting um, because he's going to completely unravel that entire concept completely it's going to go completely out the window like that and this is this is kind of it's quite hard for us to grasp on some level but we actually kind of teach this fairly well in the church on at least one side of it we teach fairly well in the church so it's not too much of a jump for us but you have to understand for the jewish audience that he's writing to they have very little teaching in what it is to be uh kingdom minded to walk in christianity because again they're very baby baby uh, believers and they've come from a tradition of judaism they're still possibly even meeting in the synagogue they might not have even split yet um 
they're in this very infant stage, and Paul's under, explaining the gospel to them, this would be really, really offensive, okay? This is going to be really hard for them to, it's going to be a hard pill for them to swallow. And so he, he starts, he says, look, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is quite complex, by the way. Don't worry if you don't kind of follow the, his logic here because it is like all over the place if, if we're honest. Okay. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And you all say, huh? Right? I mean, did that make sense to anyone? <laughs> right? So if we slow it down, we can break up a little bit, and, and you'll start to see what, what he's saying here. It's quite, quite interesting and quite challenging for the way the Jews see sin, sinfulness, and righteousness. Because he says, look, sin, comes into the, sin came into the world through one man. And we all go, okay, I'm with you on that. Are you guys following that? Yeah? Sin came through one man. What was his name? Adam, right? We know this, right? So sin came through one man, and then because of sin, what happened? People died, okay? Um, and so death has spread to all men because all have sinned. And you're like, okay, yeah, okay, I'm kind of with you, all right? And then it says, for sin was in the world before the law was given, right? And so you're like, okay, yeah, I can see that because Adam sins and everyone sins, but the law was given at Moses, right? So you've got a good chunk of time between that, you know, again, depending on how you interpret um, the age of the world and how long it's passed between creation and Moses. It could be a very long time, potentially. Um, so, yeah, you're talking something between 2,000 and 80-plus thousand years, you know, depending on which uh, option you sit on. So either way, it's been a long time where there has been sin in the world and no law. Um, but, so he says, for sin was in the world before the law was given, but... Sin isn't counted where there's no law. And you're like, hold on, that's a problem. Right? And so he's created a problem here. He goes, sin exists before the law, but sin doesn't count if there's no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So he's saying, so, when you sin, you die. That's the consequence of sin. But, sin only counts if there's a law. So why was everyone dying before Moses? That's, that's, I mean, that's what he's saying. And it's a fairly good argument. And it, but this is, this is the Jewish understanding. With, with sin, we know we sin because of the law. And we know that we die if we disobey the law because that's what the law tells us. So if you disobey the law, you're a sinner, and then you die. And, and we know that, and that's how the Jewish system is entirely constructed. And Paul goes, yeah, but what about all the people who died before the law? They obviously had sin in them. And Jews are like, wait, but, but, but there was no law. So what do you mean? Right? I mean, this is, this is just messing with the, the way that they would see this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, over those who weren't sinning like Adam. So they weren't even doing the same sin as Adam did. And, you know, you can um, kind of pull apart what Adam's sin was. In, in my opinion, you know, for, for me, Adam's sin was not eating a fruit. Okay? Eating a fruit was a, um, a manifestation of fruit, no pun intended, of the sin. Right? That was a good, by the way. Anyway, never mind. Um, but, you know, the, the eating the fruit was the, the manifestation of the actual sin. Eating the fruit wasn't the actual sin, in, in my opinion. Um, because the problem Adam had, had 
engaged with here. And the sin of Adam was to choose to believe what God wasn't saying. So you again have this faith and unbelief or faith in something else. So God says, look, you eat this fruit, you're going to die. And if you, uh, you know, so yeah, you eat this fruit, you're going to die. What does Satan say? If you eat the fruit, you're not going to die. And where does he put his trust? Where does he put his faith? Over here. So he steps out of what God is saying and steps into another reality. And so for me, that's where Adam messes up. That's where Adam drops the ball. You know, God says, you're in my image and likeness. Devil says, if you eat this fruit, you'll become like God. Adam already was like God, but he chose to let go of that faith and put his faith in another word. And so I think for me, the sin of Adam is actually the sin of unbelief, of placing his faith in something contrary to what God is saying. And actually the eating the fruit is just a, it's the next step, isn't it? But it's eating fruit wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a, the, 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 the required steps to, to lead up to eating fruit involves, I'm going to turn my back on God. I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to walk with God. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to trust in the Satan. So, this kind of unravels a lot of the, the Jewish perspective, though, doesn't it? Because we've got a problem. If there's something, if sin exists before the law, then the law isn't what we can hold on to as, as our benchmark for who's a sinner or who's not. That, that's, that's how we know who's right and wrong, is the law. You do the law, you're good. You don't do the law, you're bad. We, we know that's how it works. And all of a sudden, Paul comes along and goes, that's a terrible benchmark because everyone before that died. So they must have sinned. So what was the law then? And they go, we don't have a law for that. And it's like, well, the law is not a good benchmark then, is it? Ah, oh, okay. And so he says, he, he then goes on though, and he says, look, In fact, let's let's pause here a bit because this is this whole concept. Um, do I want to go on or pause? Let's read this whole passage and then and then we'll uh, then we'll kind of jump backwards and forwards a bit because I want to give you the whole context here. Um, so, verse fifteen. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift followed many trespasses brought justification for if one uh, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. Uh, let's pause there. Um, so are you getting that? He's basically saying, look, the issue here isn't what you're doing. The issue is Adam screwed up and then everyone became sinful. And that's a really condemning message because... That puts you in the doghouse. Because all of a sudden it's like, look, how's your week gone? Well, it doesn't matter because you're Adam's son, ultimately, or daughter, right? I mean, you descend from Adam, and therefore how you've done this week is completely irrelevant. What do you mean? I've been working really hard to do all these things right. And it's like, that's a shame because it doesn't matter. Well, but I didn't do this, and I didn't do that, and uh, I didn't do that, and I, and I made sure I did this. And it's like, mm-hmm, yeah, that's wonderful, but you're still a sinner. 
This is terrible, terrible news to, to Jewish believers because their entire framework is built on how am I conducting myself? How am I following God's law? And Paul goes, it's irrelevant how you're following God's law because you're not righteous or sinful based on God's law. You're sinful because Adam screwed up once. One guy screwed up and it screwed everything for everyone. Really, really messed up message, right? You're like, well, great. It's not exactly fair. And it's like, yeah, it's really not fair. And he's wanting to hammer his home. This is not fair. There is nothing fair about this. One guy screwed up and you are stuck in his mess. That is not fair. But it doesn't finish there, does it? And he's constantly contrasting this one man screw up with one man fixing everything. And so again, we see like, you know, the... Um, for if one, uh, for if judgment fall, and put, uh, da, da, let's try and pick a good verse here. For if, uh, because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. So he's saying, look, this is really, really bad news, but there's really, really good news as well. Because just as it's completely unfair that you're completely lost and that you're lost in sin, this is it. You're just, you, you are a sinner. That's the way you are. Like, sorry, bummer for you. That's just the way people are. People, and you know, this is not like, this is not to say people are evil. You know, this is, this is not Paul's message. It's not to say everyone's inherently evil and gonna, you know, go out and rape and pillage and kill and all that different stuff. He's just saying, you are born with a dispensation to be contrary to God, to not listen to that voice, but to listen to this voice. This is ultimately all it really is. It's, it's, it's not that, you know, you, you know, little baby Bob at like, you know, three months is actually just can't wait till I can walk so I can just kill people. You know what I mean? Like this is not like people are evil. I mean, we all know that's not true. And actually, if there's anything, um, if, if there's anything we can see, actually, it's probably for the most part, this is actually the exact opposite of the state of humanity. You know, humanity is in a very good way. And for the most part, people are very good people. Um, We like to put on the news, you know, the 0.0001% that do murder or whatever, or kidnap kids or whatever. But it's fascinating. You know I mean? Actually, statistically, we've never been in a safer culture. Life has never been better. There's never been less war in the world. There's never been, you know, less uh, crime. You know, we like to say, well, crime, crime, crime. Oh, it's scary. And it's like, yeah, if you watch the news 24-7, but actually you're safer than you've ever been. Your kids are safer playing on the street today than they were 30 years ago. Isn't that amazing? We like to, to you know, hype up and freak everyone out. But actually, that's statistically very true that even in the whole of the 19th century, your kids have never been safer. So even you go back 100 years, your kids have never been safer on the street than they are today. But you bet we're not letting our kids out on the street because there's pedophiles and kidnappers and murderers and this and that. And it's like, yeah, there are. But there's a lot less of them, apparently. Or that, or there's a lot less of them willing to do anything about it. And so we like to focus on how terrible people are and all that and stuff. But actually, that isn't at all the message of the Bible we talked about yesterday. We are made in God's image and likeness. We're made to be good, to be pure, to be holy, to be righteous. And, and so, you know, that's not what I'm saying when I say it says here that we're all born into sin as sinners. It's not to say we're inherently evil, we're terrible people. It's to say that we are born with this, uh, this bent to go our own way to not listen to God's, but to do our own thing. Um, and you know what? There's people out there that do that, and they're pretty decent people. In fact, most of us hate those people, right? Because we're Christians, and then we've got our neighbor that's, you know, like a Muslim or an atheist or whatever, and they're nicer than us, right? Isn't that the worst? 
Isn't that just the absolute worst? When you come across someone that's not a Christian, and you're like, oh man, you live way more like Jesus than I do, right? I mean, that's the worst. Um, but we all know someone that's like that, don't we? Um, and it's just this painful like mirror held up where you're like, I'm supposed to be really great and you're better than me and you don't go to church and you didn't say a prayer and you didn't, you know, whatever it is, right? And so again, this going our own way doesn't look evil. It just says, I'm choosing to reject God's way for my life and what God's speaking of me and I'm choosing to go my own way. Um, which again, Paul's going to go into this much more detail and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in much more detail over today. Um, but I just, I really want to hammer at home just before anyone's like, oh gosh, we're all sinners and everyone out there is a sinner and that's terrible. And, oh, that's true. But what's interesting about it is it's not the final story. So it's like, you know, we talked about in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, our favorite Bible verse, and have been freely justified by Jesus Christ is the next verse. It's the same sentence. So yeah, we can focus on all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But actually the truth is that's not true anymore. It was true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And have been justified. So actually the truth is, all are justified. That's the truth. The truth isn't all have sinned and fallen short of God. That's a past tense reality. So actually the truth that we should be speaking is, all are justified by Jesus Christ. And it's the same here that we go, yeah, all have fallen into sin through Adam. But the next verse is, so all have been made righteous because of Jesus. So which do we preach? Because actually one is irrelevant now. It's important that we grasp it. It's important we grasp that reality and that unfairness because it's really unfair. But it's really unfair that Jesus has made us all righteous. Even that guy over there, Hitler, or, you know, like someone really bad. Well, that's a shame. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. Because I'm a good person, right? I deserve it. And we got to get this because this is really messed up for, especially again, for that Jewish perspective. And, you know, we teach this really well in the church as a whole. Um, the first part of it, you know, most evangelical churches really teach this well. They go, look, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. You know, that person might help the lady cross the road and they might pay their taxes and they might give to charity and they might, you know, be a really nice person and they love their family well. But if they haven't said the prayer, they're a sinner. Right. Uh, and then. You know, we're really, we're really good at preaching that for the most part. We, we understand that first part um, really, really well. And it doesn't matter how hard you try. doesn't matter how good you are. You can't clean yourself up. You're a sinner. You're lost, right? And so we've historically taught that fairly well for the last four or 500 years. Um, the problem is we've only taught the one half of it, right? Because we love the depressing stuff for some reason. We just lap it up. I don't know what it is. That's really messed up. But we're gluttons for punishment or something. Um, so again, we preach the all of us falling short of the glory of God, all are sinful, oh, 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 oh. And we just cut off all the good stuff and go, let's ignore that for now. We'll get to that later or something. I don't know, let's wallow in our mess for a while. Right? I mean, I just don't know. But as much as that's true, we've, we've really not taught the other side as well. Because the other side is just as powerful. Just as powerful. In fact, if we're honest, which is more powerful, Adam or Jesus? Right? That shouldn't be a question, but it needs to be, unfortunately, for a lot of people. It really does, because people, and, and you know, we like to, we'll, we'll pick and choose, right? So we, we read here, and it's like, uh, all men were made, right, uh, were made sinful because of Adam. Some people will be made righteous because of Jesus. It doesn't have that contrast. There's the phrases all, and there's the phrases many, and we like to grab hold of the many, 
bits. So like many were made sinful um, and then many were made righteous. And in other passages, uh, you know, it's other bits. It's, so that's, um, where is it? Like, we'll have a look. Um, uh, sorry, my brain is not switched on today. Right, sorry. Uh, 15. So, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So we focus on that part, well, abounded for many, right? But how many preachers do you know that go, well, Adam made some people sinful, just some, others are fine. That's not what the many means there. And that's why later on, I mean, the, 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 it's translated all, um, you know, and so it's all uh, men were under condemnation for one trespass and all men are justified by Jesus. So we've got all and many, but it's fascinating that we pick all for the sinful bit and then we go to many for the righteous bit because we kind of like a pick and choosy kind of bit and that gives us much more room for our us and them, doesn't it? So like I said, we've taught this sinful bit really well, but we really have struggled with the righteous bit. And a lot of it's because we cannot separate righteous and saved. We really struggle with that. And again, this is why Paul's starting to go into this whole topic. Because for most people in the church, if you're righteous, that's it. You're good. You're, you're fine. You're going to heaven or whatever our goal is, right? Which most Christians, the goal is disappearing off earth and going to heaven. Um, and so there's a, a fear here. We, if you say all are righteous, then just everyone will go to heaven and it's no big deal and it's fine. Who cares, right? And that's not what Paul's saying at all, of course. And um, you know, the, the great theologian Capone, uh, Robert Capone said that heaven and hell are full of forgiven sinners. So being forgiven and being righteous doesn't determine where you're going to go in, in Capone's view. So he says everyone's righteous, but they still have some choices to make. Um, so it's not about I'm made righteous or not as far as um, are you a believer or are you Christian or are you going to heaven and hell? All the different terms. We like to break this apart, don't we? We like a good guys, bad guys, basically, right? We like a us and we like a them. We thrive on us and them as, as, a, as a species. But that's not what it's about at all. And, you know, this is really important that we get this, that, that Paul is, is highlighting just this depth of, um, of, of lostness, of depravity that we are just done with. We're totally and utterly scuppered, that we have no hope whatsoever. He really wants us to get this, especially this Jewish audience he's writing to, because they don't have that perspective at all. They're already in, and he's taking them out. He's bringing them out of God's hands and saying, nope, you guys are in no better shape than all the Gentiles. It's a really, really harrowing message for those that have thought all along, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm, I'm fine. And he's like, no, you're really not. You're in just as big a mess as everyone else. But guess what? Everyone else, we're righteous. So it's not really that big a deal. So, I mean, this is a really like sugar-coated message of really rough stuff, you know? So he gives you the really bad news. All have sinned, all have fallen God gods, but all are fine now anyway, because he fixed it. So it was a big deal, but don't worry, we've already got a solution to that. You know, it's like someone, um, I don't know, you come home from work and your partner's like, oh, or your roommate or whatever. It's like, uh, I accidentally uh, blew up your room. Sorry. Uh, 
But I bought you brand new bed, brand new MacBook. You know, it's fine. Everything's new. I got you 3,000 pounds of gift vouchers for clothes. Don't worry. It's great. You'd be like, what was the bad news again? <laughs> right? You'd be like, I don't even care. This is great. Um, you know, this is, this is what Paul's doing here. He's like, hey, this is some really, really terrible news. And you're like, oh, my God. And he's like, and here's the good news. And you're like, oh, I don't, what was the bad news again? Right? I mean, it just is relevant in the, new, the light of this great news. You're all sinners. But guess what? Jesus made you all righteous. And it's like, well, what was the bad news? I forgot. Like, I mean, it's just completely irrelevant once you've got that good news to grab a hold of. And this is what Paul's trying to do. And, you know, it's really important that we grasp this because there's some real ramifications on this message. Real ramifications on um, you have been made righteous, especially for us as, as, as believers of that, as people that have, have grappled with that, that. We've heard that spoken word of faith from God. I think you're righteous. You're holy. You're perfect in my sight. And we hear that voice and we go, oh, thank you, Jesus. I receive that. I don't count your sins against you. I don't see you as a sinner. Oh, wow, it's amazing. We step into that faith. We're given lots of opportunity to believe something different. Lots of opportunity to put our faith in something different. All the time, right? You screw up. You do that thing that you keep doing or you say that thing to someone that really messed up that relationship. Very easy for us to go, oh, I'm a filthy sinner. I'm rotten. I'm crappy. I'm useless. I'm whatever. But that's not at all what God is speaking over us. He's speaking righteousness. He's speaking life. And so it's really important that we grapple with this. I'm going to um, keep reading, and then we'll kind of we'll park here even more. Um, so the end of verse 5, he, he, the verse uh, chapter 5. Um, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law comes in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul's a genius. He's a, he, he's a, he's a theologian. He's a really smart man, probably one of the smartest Jews of his time. Um, he's writing to a Jewish audience. He knows exactly what the question is because he, he's saying, look, now that we're righteous, it doesn't matter how bad this, this news is, right? So we had this terrible news, but Jesus is bigger, right? Jesus is bigger than Adam. So Adam managed, was big enough to screw everything up. Jesus is big enough to fix everything. And then he goes, look, and now he's like, it doesn't matter how much sin comes in. Law only makes sin bigger. That's his, his message there, which again is quite an uh, 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 offensive statement for the Jews, but it's going to get way worse when we start talking about the law later for the Jews. They're going to be really upset. Um, but the law only aggravates sin and builds sin up and makes it bigger. But you know what? Where sin abounds and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, grace is just bigger. It abounds the more. And so all the Jews are sitting there going, wait, you, you, but sin is a big deal. And what we're doing is a big deal. And this is it. You know, this is, this is unraveling sin as a concept of what you do. Sin for us is eating the fruit. Sin for us is cheating on your husband. Sin for us is beating someone up. Sin for us is doing something. And that is what the Jewish concept was, right? Because what was sin and what was righteousness? It was how we obeyed the law or didn't obey the law. There you go. Absolutely. And this is the message of Jesus. Absolutely. He's like, I don't really care about the action. I'm caring about what's going on inside that causes the action. And so, yeah, Jesus talks about this frequently, especially on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so this is what Paul's deconstructing here, because that's all the Jews care about is the outward appearance of what they're doing. 
It's about, am I ticking the box or am I not? And Paul's going, hold on, guys, you're missing the point here. This is something that's deeply rooted in you because Adam fell. It's a thing that says, I want to go my own way. Yeah, God, you're pulling me this way, but I want to go this way. And so he's unraveled that concept of sin is something you do. But the Jews are still going to ask this question. Because he says, well, look, even where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's not a problem. Jesus is big enough. So he asks a hypothetical question. Because you've got to forget, you've got to remember, this is a letter, all right? So you can't really work with the back and forward. You, know? you can't say something crazy and be like, good luck with that. And then, you know, immediately they're going to be like, but, but, but what about this and this and this? Well, this is like months apart to send a letter. You know I mean? You send a letter, it gets there months from now. They go, ah, they write a letter. And months later, you're talking like, you know, three, four months back and forward. So you're talking, could be up to a year by the time you get a response, right? And then you have to write your response. And it's another three, four, five, six months before they see it. So they get their reply another year later, right? I mean, so you better just figure out what their questions might be and write that into your letter. And this is what Paul does all the time. He's brilliant at this. And so Paul asks a hypothetical question on the first verse of, uh, verse six, of chapter six, doesn't he? He says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right, because this is what the Jews are going to think. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. If you're doing all this grace is bigger than sin, well, then we should just start sinning all the time. Right? That's what he's, he's, he knows, because that's what the Jews are going to be upset with. And probably this is what he gets asked everywhere he goes and he preaches his message, right? He knows the, the challenges that people have. Um, so he's like, right, I'm just going to cover this in my letter right from the outset. And I love his response. I actually love it in the J.B. Phillips translation. It's amazing. Um, but in the ESV, it says, by no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? In the J.B. Phillips uh, translation, it says, don't be so stupid. You're dead. How are you supposed to sin? <laughs> right? But you've got to stop and go, wait, what? Where did the dead thing come in? Right? I mean, this has come out of nowhere. We've been reading Romans, you know, and out of nowhere, he's like, you're dead. How can you sin? And you're like, Wait, what do you mean we're dead? Right, this is whole new information. And now he goes into a completely new um, analogy and, 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 and concept for what's going on here. And he talks about how we are dead. Oh, um, don't be so stupid. You're dead. How can you sin? Is from the J.B. Phillips translation. Phillips has two L's. He spelt it wrong. Um, so he's, he's now going to start hitting this really hard. And what's interesting about it is um, he's come out of nowhere and just said, oh, you're dead. And like, you're like, wait, what's going on here? So then he starts to focus down and, and come right down and start talking about how we're dead. And he will mention in the next chapter over 18 times that you're dead. I mean, that's a pretty solid um, focus of a chapter. And so we're just going to quickly um, read through that, and, I, and then we'll go back and kind of look at what he's talking about. He says, so by no means, how can we who have died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, 
If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Jesus, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, from death to life, and your members as to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Uh, should we keep reading? Let's pause there for a second. Um, are you, you seeing that though? I mean, it's really clear. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead. You died with him, you were crucified with him, you were buried with him. But if you understand that, that you're dead, you're dead, you're crucified, you're buried, you rise up with him and you live with him. And a lot of Christians want to live with him, but they don't want to die with him. And they, they don't actually have any um, concept of them having died. And so we all, uh, you know, a lot of people teach this concept of um, the sinful nature. We like to talk about, well, we have a sinful nature. Hogwash, to be honest with you, for the most part. I mean, it's, it's a, a totally fabricated theology. Um, and, it, and it makes sense in light of some verses. We can kind of pull on it and, and grab it. Um, but the only, only chapter really that helps with a, a concept of a sinful nature is Romans 5, 6, and 7. Um, but very selective reading of Romans 5, 6, and 7. You have to ignore a lot of 5, 6, and 7 to really make it work. Predominantly, the only real passage that, that works in and of itself is Romans 7, uh, 13 through 21. We can read, you know, Paul kind of struggling with his sinful nature is how we see it. Um, nothing to do with that, of course, and, and we'll get to that in, in the afternoon. Um, but from this, you can see the, the, the concept of uh, being lost to sin. And so this is where we get the, the concept of the sinful nature is, this, is what Paul's talking about in Romans 5, that you're lost to sin. You were lost in Adam's transgression. Adam screwed up, and therefore we are all set on this trajectory away from God. Now, in one sense, yeah, that's just our, it's our nature. But in another sense, it's not, um, it's not like I was saying that we're inherently evil, bad, whatever, any of that kind of um, stuff that's not built into us, you know. Um, like we talked about the flood yesterday, you know, it's a good good chance it's much more uh, that less than we're like inherently evil than actually we're just tarnished and we're, we're tainted and God wanted to clean us up because he found a pure um, strand or whatever, any of that kind of stuff. Um, for me, this isn't about that. But if, the, if you do have a need to grab a hold of a sinful nature, we are born sinful um, and only Jesus can fix that. Please grab a hold of Jesus can fix that. And if anything, Romans 6 should kill the concept of you ever having a sinful nature ever again. So if you really need to believe before I say a prayer or tick a right box and become a Christian, I am sinful and I've got a sinful nature. If you need to have that, that's okay. But just make sure that now that you understand that you've done that, it's gone. You know, this is, I mean, this is what it's, it's saying, like, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. You died with Jesus, you were buried with Jesus. You're dead to, to all of this sin, of all of this um, this baggage. And again, let me, let me clarify. So when I say sin, what do you think? You're still thinking things you do, aren't you? Yeah. Right? And I do it still. I, I read sin in the Bible and I'm still thinking of this screwed up thing I did yesterday or the thing I did earlier on. I'm like, oh, crap. Right? I'm thinking of things I do. It's, it's built into us at some level that we, we think of things we do when we hear sin. But actually, again, sin isn't what you do. It's this, it's this, um, this bent towards not listening to God's voice and listening to another voice. Yeah. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that is it. We, 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 were, we were genuinely, that was our master. It was our driving force was I am going my own way. I am my own master in one sense, right? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not about what we do. And actually, what's really interesting is the word sin is used 42 times in the book of Romans. Do you know how many times it refers to something you do? Twice. Out of 42 times, it refers to something you do twice. The rest of the time, it's not about what you do. It's, again, talking about this bent, this, this personality, this, this drive that is from within, not something you do, which is outward. And there is there's two different words in the Greek or two different um, inflections on the words that, that point to these two different realities, something you do and something that's, that's driving from within. And so Paul is consistently talking about this driving force within that pushes us towards going our own way as opposed to hearing God's voice and leaning on him and resting in him. Um, and so, again, when we, when, we, when we understand this concept of sin, especially when we're reading in Romans, we shouldn't be thinking of what am I doing? We should be thinking of this, this driving force. Um, but he's saying, look, that isn't your master anymore. And you can't, you can't live in that place if you understand you died to that reality. That whole reality of this is what drives me. This is who I am. It's dead. It's done away with. And, you know, um, I've got a friend, John, who has a great analogy for this. And um, he talks about um, kind of two different realities, a reality before the cross and a reality after the cross. And, 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 he, and he says, you know, imagine... Um, Imagine you're an onion, okay? And so it's, it's a bit of a random analogy, but work with me, okay? It's like a random, uh, imagine you're an onion. So before the cross, you're this onion, and you, you, you look at yourself, and you're like, I've got to clean myself up. I've got to deal with all my sin, all my shame, all my uh, brokenness, all this stuff, right? And this is Christian 101 for a lot of people, right? I've got to work on my crap because I'm not a bad, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I should get rid of all my crap. And so imagine you're an onion, though, right? So you look down, and you go, right, I've got... Oh, gosh, you know, I've got all this tendency to lie. I need to stop lying. And so you, you grab the layer of the onion and you peel it off and you finally get rid of it. And you throw it away and you look down and you go, oh, lust. I knew that one would come up. All right, I better deal with my lust, right? And so you start working on your lust and you're, oh, she's pretty. Oh, no, okay, try harder. Um, all right, so you're working on your lust and you finally somehow get rid of it. And you, oh, okay, good. I'm getting more holy and more good, right? And you look down and you're, anger. I need to deal with anger, right? And so you start working on your anger and you, you peel that back and you're like, oh, more lust. Oh, and anger, apparently. Okay, and right? And see, so you're dealing. And you, oh, oh, okay, go rid of that. And, oh, jealousy. It's not fair. Chris doesn't have jealousy. And, right? And so we're, we're just working with that stuff. That was clever as well, by the way. Um, right? So you're dealing with that. And you, but what's the problem with peeling back layers of an onion? You, right? I mean, it's just more onion. It's not like you're finding something else in there, right? It's not like you finally go, ah, and here we are, a bundle of grapes, you know? Like, I mean, <laughs> this is just more onion. You can peel back all the crap you want, but you're not dealing with the issue, right? And this is, this is what so many folks do is, is we, again, we have this bent to, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to clean up the sinful self. And there's nothing to clean up. It's just a useless reality. And actually what we're, what we're left with is someone that is fixated and, and they're trying to live with Christ without acknowledging this is already dead. It's done away with. Ignore it. And the reality is we actually are this whole new creation, this whole new reality. There is a new onion, right? And, and so when we look down, we actually, it's not a, the Christian maturity is not this process of working on your sin. It never is about working on sin. Sorry, yeah, go for it. 
Absolutely, right? And so it's not about fixing on who I am and how messed up I am and how sinful I am. Like that's a complete um, waste of time because that's dead. It's buried. It's crucified. It's done away with. And actually we've this new creation. So if you imagine it as a new onion, what's your process of maturity now? Not working on your sin, but it's about discovering who you are, discovering your righteousness. So now you look down and you go, wow, I am the righteousness of Christ. Oh, that's amazing. What's in here? And so you peel back the first layer, right? You start peeling back the layer and you look in and go, whoa. Peace that passes understanding. Whoa. You start peeling back more layers. You go, whoa, joy, healing virtue, right? And you're just peeling back and you're just like oneness with God. And it's just all good. And actually maturity in Christ is a maturity in what he's done in you and who you are in this newness of life and who you are as a righteous creation, right? You're not delving into what Adam has made you and trying to clean up Adam's mess, but instead you're trying to discover what Jesus has given you. And it's just receiving that. It's just constantly. And again, it goes back to this faith. It's about hearing his words, hearing his voice, just leaning on him, listening to his voice. And you discover who you are and you grow in this process. And so many of us default back to this old reality, don't we? We go back before the cross and we go, oh, but that's who I am. And we sit and working on that. We're polishing it up. You know, we're cleaning ourselves up. And, and the truth is we're working on the dead self. It's our dead person, right? So it's like we, we dig ourselves up, we pick ourselves up. We go, gosh. Um, dress that up nicely. And so we put some nice new clothes on it, um, comb the hair, yeah, spray it with a lot of deodorant because this thing's dead. It's not smelling great, right? Uh, better put a hat on because all the hair's falling out. Um, right, sit up on the front row of church and it looks great, right? What's the problem? It's a dead person, right? It still doesn't matter how good it looks because it's dead. But this is kind of what we're working on is so many of us is, is we're fixated on cleaning ourselves up and working on making sure we're looking good and we're, we're, we're doing the right thing and this and this and this. We're getting rid of that sin and getting rid of that sin. But that's not the Christian life. It just isn't. You know, if, if you, um, let's deviate from Romans a little bit. You know, we, we look at um, 2 Corinthians 5, doesn't it? It talks about that. Um, uh, in fact, let me read it because it's so good. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 16 or uh, so. Um, yeah, let's start 16. Now, listen to this, right? Because, well, let me read 17, all right? So it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We love that passage, right? We love speaking that over ourselves. Yeah, woo, yeah. Uh, you know, anyone that's in Christ, they're a new creation. It's all about, you know, the old is done away with. And that fits really well with what we're just talking, right? But what's interesting is, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Well, what was the verse right before? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, through whom Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the whole cosmos to himself. So Paul's thing of if anyone is in Christ, there's a lot of ifs in the Bible that are not how we would perceive them on a face value English if. We do it sometimes as well. Like, well, if that's true, then this, right? And what are we doing? We're kind of using it as a, um, uh, like a rhetorical thing, isn't it? It's like, I'm saying if, but I'm pointing out to you that is true, right? And so it's not a thing of like, if they might be, but maybe they're not. It's that if, like, look, I consider no one according to the flesh because all have been reconciled. The cosmos has been reconciled. So if Christ has reconciled the world to himself, 
why are we looking at the past? Why are we looking at the old nature? Why are we looking at the sinful self when we could be looking at who they are in Christ, who they are in Christ, the righteousness of Christ, that gift of righteousness? Again, Romans 5, all have been made righteous. So I'm not saying that every person out there is going to heaven or every person out there is saved or however you like to term those things of belief, saved, heaven, hell, all, that, all, the, all the us, them stuff that we love to fixate on. I'm not fixating on that. But what I am fixating on is Paul doesn't see sinners. He sees righteous people. He doesn't see people outside of Christ. He sees people in Christ. Now, what they do with that and, and how they, they walk that out is entirely up to them. And we all have that journey, don't we? We all have that, um, that walk of, of engaging with that, of resting in that truth and that reality. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not negating that element of it. So don't hear me wrong, okay? I'm not, I'm not you know... I'm saying everyone's going to heaven or any of that sort of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But Paul has this totally different engagement with it. He looks at it as, look, let's fixate on the truth, the reality of what Jesus has done, of righteousness, of, 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 um, of a new creation. Now, the new creation, you know, you look at Colossians. Jesus Christ holds every single thing together. In him and through him, all things are held together. He has made everything and he holds everything together. And there's this beautiful dimension because Colossians points to this as well. It has this dimension of a new creation that he talks about. But what I love about the new creation that they talk about in Colossians is is he prefaces it with, look, Jesus is holding everything together. Nothing exists without him. And yet what happens? Jesus dies. And everything dies with him. But Jesus comes back to life. And in him. He holds everything together. He brings everything together. He creates a new creation. But in this new creation, there is no corruption. There is only life. There is only righteousness. There is only Christ. And so there's a beautiful dynamic that we miss in that Jesus holds everything together. We like it in the kind of like, oh, Jesus is holding the world in his hands or something, you know, like a children's rhyme or whatever, which is great. But actually there's a dynamic of this of like, in Jesus' death, the old creation, new creation, that is significant reality because Jesus died. Well, Jesus was the only thing sustaining reality. So his death had some major impact here. And of course, this is a spiritual reality. It's not like when he died on the cross, the whole earth just like ceased to exist for three days while he was getting back up. But, you know, like, um, so we're talking spiritual terms. You know, you didn't die. You didn't physically die when he died. We're, again, we're talking spiritual reality here. We're talking language to, that, that explains um, spiritual realities, you know. So, um, don't get too fixated on this and, and it's and you know sometimes we can run with an analogy to the nth degree and get ourselves into all sorts of weird places and so i'm not i'm not asking you that but i think there is something beautiful in that picture isn't there of, of him holding everything together but when he dies that everything it's thrown into a whole new mix a, a dimension of 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 no christ and then it's brought back together in his newness newness of life um, you know, so but I really want to focus on, on this righteousness, sinfulness, and then we'll, we'll stop for lunch and uh, take a break. And then we can go into seven later on. Um, but I want to think more about this because this has real ramifications on how you live life, right? I mean, because I don't know about you. I still fall into this trap of I've got to fix this. I've got to do that. And I think, oh, God, I'm still doing this. I really need to work on that, right? I mean, it's my default thought. It's like I'm still doing that stupid thing or that sin or that whatever. I need to work on this. I need to fix this. Um, 
And my default is to dig myself back up and start working on myself rather than going, God, what have you given me? Who am I? What is my righteousness that actually makes this completely irrelevant, right? Because if, if the truth is, if you fixate on, oh, I've got this, um, this anger problem. I keep getting angry with my spouse. I come home from work and I'm just angry. I'm frustrated. I'm just, Ugh! right? Well, that's your sin that you can fixate on and try and clean up. But fixating on it actually isn't going to help. But actually, what if I go, Jesus, what are you speaking to me in this situation? What are you speaking to me about this situation I find myself in? I'm constantly getting angry. I'm constantly losing my rag. Like, what's going on? He goes, look, Phil, you're full of peace. I've made you to be full of peace. I want you to meditate on that and rest in that. Like, just think about it. You have the Prince of Peace living in you. You're full of joy. You have the fullness of joy dwelling in you. And as we start to meditate on these truths, we suddenly find, you know what? It's really hard to get angry when you're full of peace and joy. So actually, the anger wasn't the issue. The issue was I didn't know who I was. And you know, I love Jesus talks about um, the vine, doesn't he, in, in John 15. And he says, look, if you just abide in me, you'll grow and, and branches will grow and fruit will come. And, and, you know, the branch that is grafted into the vine produces fruit. And I think a lot of times we don't really want to be grafted into the vine. We want to just produce our own fruit. But the problem with that is a branch, you know, no one's been walking down the park and you see a branch on the path and go, oh, I wonder what this will produce. And you just sit down and watch the branch, right? Oh, I'll keep coming back every day to see what fruit it brings eventually. Nothing's coming out of that branch. It's a branch. Branches don't produce fruit. Trees produce fruit. They produce it on the branch. The branch is a key component. We talked about that as well. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. We talked about it at some point in the school, um, maybe last week. But Jesus loves to work through people. He doesn't really tend to do anything else. God very rarely works on his own. He uses people or angels. He loves to use his creation as messengers, as acts, uh, as, as, as his hands and feet, basically. He loves to use his creation. And so you aren't going to see a trunk producing fruit. It, it loves to use the branches. I mean, that's what the branches are for, to bear fruit. But it's interesting, even the language Jesus uses, um, you know, that, that, that word um, is actually quite well translated in the English of this bearing fruit. Um, because a lot of times we think of fruit production, don't we? We think of ourselves as like, we've got to produce some fruit. But actually, it's not, it's not an effort. Um, that word bearing is an effortless word. It's, it's, you know, and a tree doesn't work hard to produce fruit. It just happens doesn't it if the branch is attached to the trunk then fruit's gonna happen you don't really have to worry about it um you know you may need to make sure it's get water and sunshine and the soil doesn't have like some sort of crazy disease in it or something but for the most part if a branch is attached to the trunk there's going to be fruit it's just going to happen and so it's this thing of just abiding of resting and you know this isn't to say we don't grow and we do grow like uh, if you go to a tree and i ask you um which root, which branch has been there the longest? What are you going to point to? The, the biggest, thickest, longest, right? I mean, the branches grow, but they grow in the tree. They don't grow apart from the tree. They don't grow away from, you know, they're growing in the tree. And they, they, they get broader and broader and broader, but they're still fully on that tree. And so there's a thing of, we do grow, but we grow in Christ. There's no growing apart from Christ. None. You cut that off and it stops growing immediately. And so there's this resting, and that's the only way you can grow. The only way you mature is not by focusing on your sin and by dealing with your stuff and cutting yourself off from the vine and working and working and working. The only way you grow is you go, 
I'll just sit here and rest. And I'll listen to your voice and I'll let you do what you do. But that is how I produce fruit. That is how I do good works. That is how I do what is needed to be done. Um, and it's important. You know, we talk about, um, you know, faith without works. And I talked about it yesterday. And, and absolutely, works are important. But if you fixate on works, you might forget about faith. If you fixate on faith, works will take care of themselves. If you fixate on hearing his voice, he'll work through you. If you fixate on doing the work, you might forget to ever listen to the voice. And so it's really important that, yeah, we place a huge importance on, on works, but we don't put the, the cart before the horse, you know? Um, and so that's really, really, uh, I can't stress that enough. I think it's Reinhard Bonnke that says, um, uh, milk can produce butter, but you can never produce milk with butter, you know? And so it's that whole analogy of the, of the faith and works. It's like, look, yeah, it's great, butter, 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 but I don't have any milk, right? And it's the thing of, look, you can fixate on works. And occasionally you might have done it out of faith. But if you're fixating on works, odds are you're doing it over here and you're not hearing that voice that really produces the works that can. And so it's about fixating on his voice, hearing his voice, hearing that word of faith consistently. If you focus on that, if you fixate on nothing but hearing his voice, resting in his faith, then work will always happen. And actually we should be conscious of Am I producing the works that Jesus talked about? So there's plenty of commentary on works in the New Testament that, you know, Paul, Jesus, they talk about, what are you doing? You know, are you loving people? Are you looking after the poor? Are you feeding the sick? You know, are healing the sick? Are you doing these things? And we should be constantly looking at that and going, if I'm looking in the mirror and I'm not seeing works in my life, I should be asking, what voice am I listening to? Absolutely. And it's like we were talking about yesterday, you know, that this commandment we have in the New Testament is to rest. The thing we're to work really hard at is rest. And it's true, actually, because, you know, what, if they give us like work really hard at being good, we'd probably be pretty good at that on, on some level. Right. Probably not that great, but we'd be we, we'd be able to do it. Work hard to rest. Oh, my gosh. That is my biggest challenge ever. Like work hard to not work. Oh, gosh. This is a nightmare. And, and you know, here's the thing. When, we, when we, we're striving to enter his rest and we're operating out of this place of resting in him and, and just allowing and we're not fixing on works, this doesn't mean that you're going to do nothing. And, you know, people that have this down, some of them, yeah, aren't doing anything. That's fine. That's, that's great. But, you know, you look at people like Heidi Baker. She's working her butt off. I mean, she works harder than probably all of us put together. You know I mean? She's running international ministry. She's traveling all over the world. She's still, like, actually doing this stuff. She's flying into, like, bush areas on our plane and like ministering to people and you know dealing with demonic folks and healing the sick and getting hundreds of people saved and then she flies over to london to do a conference and then she's back over you know it's like what the heck is going on you know and um and so it's but it's out of a place of rest um and again so if you fix it on that again i, I can't remember who said it initially um famous uh, older saying but the workers will out uh, the the lovers will outwork the workers and it's, it's this concept of those that are resting in his voice those that are just resting in him they'll always outwork those that are just trying to work um because yeah you just burn out when you're just working hard don't you in your own strength um so yeah i think it's just really important that we grasp this concept because 
You can be working on your stuff and you can be peeling back those layers all day. You're going to go nowhere. You're, you're a branch on the floor and you're not producing fruit. Um, and, you know, that's the thing I want to be producing, fruit. But what's interesting is what does the Bible, what fruit does the Bible ask of us? Right? What, what fruit is the Bible asking of us? Fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit that it requests. It says, look, this is what I want from you. And this is what it looks like to live in Christ. You know, it contrasts it with the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And so if you're working in your own efforts, this is what will happen. And it gives us all those works of the flesh. It's really interesting. The works of the flesh. So what the flesh produces is a work. So actually to be um, uh, sexually immoral and unthankful and a gossip and a glutton, all these different things, that's actually work. You're working to do that. It's interesting. The fruit of the Spirit is a fruit. Again, you bear it. You don't produce it. It's something that comes natural. And what's really interesting, and I think we forget this, is it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Rose or Rachel or Phil. God isn't interested in my fruit. Because my fruit usually looks like the works of the flesh, right? When I'm working my butt off to produce fruit, I'm doing my own thing and it's not going well. He's actually after the fruit of the Spirit. And so what does it look like to have the fruit of the Spirit? It looks like letting him produce the fruit. It's his fruit to bear. So actually we look at things and go, oh gosh, I need to be more loving. I need to be more joyful. I need to be more peace. I need to be more kind. Probably, yeah. (laughs) But if you are fixated on becoming more loving, becoming more whatever, what are you doing? You're going back to this old way of doing things, clean up my old self, work on my own. Instead of going, God. You speak love into me. You speak kindness. You speak peace. You create this reality. You, you speak the faith that, re, that is required to access this realm of grace because you've given me everything. You have everything re, re, pertaining to life and godliness. You have everything that you need is in your hands. I just need that faith. I need that spoken word that lets me go, oh, wow, that's who I am. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org dot uk